Welcome to the Science of Beers podcast with me, Mick McGee. Talking science and drinking beers with researchers down at the pub. We cover a new topic each episode, so join us with a brew and let's cheers to science. This week we are getting into the very strange world of subatomic particles with physicist Astrid Eichhorn. We'll be mostly exploring quantum gravity, but we'll also be getting through other weird things happening on very small scales. Hope you enjoy. Astrid Icorn, thank you very much for joining me in the Science and Beers podcast. Can I get a cheers, please? Sure. Mm. Astrid, you have a PhD from the University of Jena. Now you are an associate professor at the CP3 Origins Group at the University of Southern Denmark. You have a, a string of awards since your PhD. You've got, uh, for example... Uh, prizes for young researcher, you've got the teaching prizes for, for physics, uh, but most notably this year you have the Willem Young Investigator Grant, which is kind of a big deal. There's, there was 15 researchers in all of Denmark that got that grant this year, and you were one of them. And you got it for the project Probing the Quantum Nature of Gravity. So I would like to probe the, probe the quantum nature of gravity with you. Mm-hmm. Let's just define the quantum world. We're talking about the atom. We're talking about electrons. We're talking, yeah, much, much smaller. Much so, smaller so the, the atom, atom is like enormous compared to the scale of, of the quantum properties of space-time. What is between the atoms? So atoms make up, they make up everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't trust them. <laughs> uh, so what is in the space, say, between atoms or between the electrons that are interacting between the atoms? Yeah, so, so so this is where, where space-time itself is, right? And and I mean, usually uh, we just sort of take the existence of space and time for granted and maybe we don't ask about its fundamental structure so much. But in the same way that atoms or, you know, the elementary particles in atoms make up matter, we have some idea that there should be some form of fundamental structure of space-time, something that we should be able to understand, somehow the, the microscopic structure of that sort of fabric of our universe. And that's basically what, what quantum gravity is about. So it's 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 taking the, the space-time from Einstein's general relativity, which, which allows us to understand gravity at large scales, and then it asks, well, but what is the microscopic structure of that fabric? Um, and and in that at that microscopic scales, quantum effects kick in and, and make that description of that microscale of that microstructure complicated. So we're we're talking about the very fabric of the universe here. Yes. You know, you know, exactly. It, it, it used to be finding finding an atom was was a finding a micro was a big deal. Finding an atom was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Finding an electron was a big deal. You go into a proton, you find quarks. That mm-hmm. was a big deal. What you're trying to do is go even further than yes, that and see exactly. what, what what is in just the space between these these yeah. defined things. Yeah. So I, I think you can view a lot of, of physics as sort of the process of zooming in on on nature and trying to understand it at more and more and more fundamental levels. Um, and within the last century, we've come really far in that road. And now we're at the stage where we can sort of ask the really, really deep questions and, and basically try to understand what happens if we zoom in so far that, you know, the microstructure of space-time starts to become visible, that we can sort of resolve that. Do you have any, any theories or ideas? or? Yeah, so, so there's a number of, of different theories um, for, for what that microstructure could be. Um, so broadly defined, maybe you can think of um, two uh, main ideas. Um, one of them sort of follows these, this historical development that whenever one zooms into the structure of something, uh, sort of something new emerges. Like, you know, you zoom into, into the table here, you, you discover atoms. You zoom into atoms, you discover protons. You zoom into protons, you discover quarks. So whenever you zoom in, there's some new structure. Um, and, and there's a sort of school of, of thought or of ideas that says, well, probably something like that is true for quantum gravity. Um, and so string theory is something that, that maybe you've heard about. Um, it's basically the idea that as you zoom in further, you then discover sort of these tiny strings 
um, that make up everything or there's other approaches called loop quantum gravity or causal sets that sort of have an idea that there is some form of atoms of space-time just mm -hmm. as there are atoms of matter and then there's a, a different school of thought which is basically what i'm working on um, the idea that as you zoom in further at some point um, this this sort of emergence of new and new structures stops and instead what you're encountering is a new symmetry principle a, a, a symmetry principle yes okay could you elaborate <laughs> yes yeah so so um the, the i mean symmetries are always quite powerful right they allow us to um reconstruct a full object by just looking at a part of it like for instance if you take a butterfly just look at its left half by symmetry you know what the right half looks like or you take a sunflower and by just looking at part of it, at a part of it using then a rotational symmetry you can reconstruct the rest um, and so this idea of of space time uh, having a new symmetry is that the symmetry is scale symmetry that's a symmetry where things just look the same if you zoom in further and further so it's something that is sort of self-similar or fractal-like. Um, uh, yeah, like like some crazy psychedelic fractals. You yes. just keep zooming in and zooming in and zooming in and exactly. then you get stuck in a loop. Yeah, and, and sort of that, that powerful <laughs> symmetry principle is, is one of the ideas of what sort of could happen once you, once you zoom into space-time really, really far, that there are no new structures that emerge, but it, instead it's this sort of self-similarity or this new symmetry um, that then shows up. And, and somehow this these, can, can I call them fractals? Yeah, I would say fractal-like, but yeah. Fractal-like <laughs> symmetry things, they, they're, they're holding space and time together. Yeah, they, they are sort of describing the, the, the microstructure. So they, they sort of um, give an answer to the question, what do we see as we zoom in further? How many sort of new layers of new stuff should we expect to emerge? And the answer is none. At some point, you just hit, the, hit this sort of self-similarity, this sort of fractal-like fractal thing, and then you can zoom in arbitrarily far and you will always sort of see the same type of thing. Mm -hmm. so, so that sort of stops this, you know, sequence of new stuff emerging whenever you zoom in more. One of the things that, that, have, that have freaked me out about uh, quantum mechanics is they say things can spring in and out of existence. It can be there and then it disappears and then it just comes back in again. Mm -hmm. Like, I think electrons can do this. Yeah, they can sort of, I mean, I wouldn't say they, they go in and out of existence necessarily. I mean, it depends on, on what exactly you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, th there is this, this property of, um, um, of, of elementary particles that um, because of quantum fluctuations, the, the vacuum, which you think of as just being empty space and nothing, is in fact sort of filled with, with sort of virtual particles that just exist for like short moments of time. Um, and, and this really sort of changes um, the, the vacuum in the quantum world to compare to our sort of classical and naive expectation. And that certainly um, creates one of the big challenges of quantum field theory, what, what allows us to understand the other fundamental forces. The framework of quantum field theory is the mathematical framework in which we describe these forces. And one of the properties that shows up in there is this consequence of, um, of quantum effects these these vacuum fluctuations of particles sort of showing up and disappearing again and yeah. changing the vacuum into something that is not just empty space can, mm -hmm. we, can we talk about some of the the more known weird things in the yeah. quantum world sure. like like for example quantum entanglement mm -hmm. quantum entanglement as far as i know you can have two electrons that are paired and they kind of like mimic each other and mm -hmm. you can put several kilometers in between them. Mm -hmm. And then if you change the principle mm -hmm. of one, the other one immediately changes. Yes. How are they connected through this fabric of space-time? That, that's a great question. Um, so I don't think we, we sort of understand um, entanglement um, really com completely. I mean, there's a mathematical formalism which basically says the two of them um, go into one common state. So that no matter how far you, you, you pull them apart, they are nevertheless one joint system. Um, and so therefore, one of the components, if you change that, the other will always know about that. Um, but I don't think we have like a, a very, very deep fundamental understanding um, of what that actually does to space-time. Um, so this would be one of the questions that a quantum theory of gravity would allow us um, to answer. So it would 
go beyond describing the system of entangled particles on a classical space-time and would tell us what happens to space-time itself. Can we have sort of entanglement of, of space-time or does, how does space-time react to this system of entangled particles mm -hmm. sitting on top of it? So that's one of the open questions. Is, gra uh, is yeah. gravity in any sense of the word involved in something like that, in, in quantum entanglement? Um, so, so not in the systems that are currently built experimentally, um, s simply because the, the gravitational effects in, in, those, in those systems are just too weak. So basically because an electron is like extremely light. Um, and so in these experiments, the gravitational force basically doesn't play, uh, doesn't play a role. Can we talk a bit about the Higgs boson? Sure. That was discovered, uh, it was predicted years ago, and uh, it was discovered at CERN, the mm -hmm. Large Hadron Collider. Um, and uh, another fantastic example about scientific theory and mm -hmm. predictions eventually uh, being proven experimentally. Mm -hmm. um, and I understand it was a, a major discovery. But, yeah, it was uh, certainly a big deal. <laughs> understanding it was quite challenging. Could, could you try to to help me with that mm -hmm. um so um basically it's about the the question why the elementary particles that we know why they are massive why they aren't massless so why they have mass yes or, or yeah. don't yeah. yes exactly so so that you in principle you can have both um kinds you can have for instance the photon the the particle that is associated to light that is a massless particle it travels at the speed of light um, and then you have stuff like the quarks and the electron um, that, you know, make up atoms and make up us um, that are massive. Um, and the, the question is, what, what makes them massive? Where do they take the mass from? And the, the Higgs boson is um, basically a, a new form of interaction um, th that interacts with the electron, it interacts with the quarks. And, th and through that interaction, it sort of slows these particles down. So if you switch off the Higgs boson, then everything will just travel at the speed of light. Um, and because they, these particles interact with the, with the Higgs boson, or actually with the, with the Higgs field um, that is associated with that, these interactions sort of slow these particles down. Um, and, and this is what, what makes them massive. And different elementary particles interact um, with the Higgs, with the Higgs to sort of different extents, and the more they interact, the more massive they become. Uh, that's the part that I didn't didn't quite get because it was the Higgs physical particle that was discovered, but mm -hmm. yet it's the it's a Higgs field. Mm -hmm. So, in in my mind, it's nothing physical. It's it, it's some kind of like another force with space and time, mm -hmm. and then you have the a Higgs field. Mm -hmm. I don't, don't really understand how that works. Mm -hmm. So, so this is because in, in, the, in the quantum understanding of forces, um, forces are um, associated to fields on the one side, but uh, they are all associated to particles. So every field can have sort of excitations, like a little sort of extra energy in the field at a certain point. And this is what we then associate to particles. Um, so for instance, the electromagnetic force comes with its particle, the photon. Um, then in, in an atomic, uh, in, in, in a nucleus, in a, in a proton, we have the, the strong force that keeps the quarks bound together so that they form, form protons. And that strong force is associated to its own particle, the gluon. And in a similar way, you then have the Higgs field, and it's the sort of extra force or interaction that gives masses to the particles. But then it can also have these sort of excitations, these little sort of extra packets of energy which mm -hmm. we associate with particles, and this is the Higgs boson. And, and so this is then what you can see in a particle detector. It's sort of the, the particle that is associated with the field. Uh, but the field is the one that is sort of fundally, fundamentally important to generate the masses. And uh, does this Higgs field, does that, are you incorporating this, this, this field into your own work and trying to discover or, or find out quantum gravity? Yes. Find out the nature of quantum gravity, maybe? Yeah. So um, maybe one of the, the things that sort of distinguishes um, what my research group does from, from many other research groups is that we try to think about the nature of space and time at the same time as we think about the nature of elementary particles. Um, so a lot of research typically focuses on either one of the questions. So it either tries to understand elementary particles better 
or it tries to understand the microscopic structure of space and time. Um, and uh, what, what we are saying is sort of that you can't understand one without the other. Um, you know, elementary particles are influenced by their environment, which is space-time, sort of like an you know, animal species is influenced by the environment that it lives in. And on the other hand, that animal species also influences its environment. And in the same way, elementary particles, again, sort of shape what happens to the microstructure of space and time. Um, and so the, the work that we are pursuing is trying to understand the microstructure of space-time together with the structure of elementary particles. Um, and so the Higgs field is therefore one of those fields that we are trying to take into account and try to understand what is the sort of interplay between the Higgs field and space-time uh, or the fundamental fabric of space-time. Doesn't sound like a trivial task to me. No, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and so your, your group are, are, would be working like theoretically uh, yes. with, with that. Yeah. So, so another thing that is inherent to us is, is time, the forward movement of time. Mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned everything that we hold true is based on the, the structures of the universe, which is related to space and time. Uh, does time work in the quantum world in anything that we can relate to? Uh, like, does time move forward in the quantum world? Um, yes, time, time always um, moves forward, but we don't actually really understand why. Um, so most of the laws of physics are actually symmetric. If you, if you would have a universe that goes backward, where everything sort of moves backward in time, that would be the same laws of physics um, as where things move forward in time. Mm -hmm. And so understanding why only one of those is actually realized, so where this, what is called arrow of time, that only po points towards the future, uh, where that comes from is also an, an open question, actually. Um, or simultaneously, or similarly, you could, you could also ask things like, well, why do we actually have three dimensions of space and one of time? Why do we not in a uni why do we not live in a universe which has two directions of time, mm -hmm. which would obviously completely change physics and our everyday experience? Um, but so all of these are are very fundamental questions that we don't have any answers to. So we just observe that there is one direction of time; it always goes forward, three directions of space, but we don't actually understand why. Does does any of your work um, look? towards, say, the, the beginning of the universe to explain why the universe is as it is today. Maybe some things might, could have been tweaked at the start and then maybe we'll have an extra dimension of time. Yeah, so, so that's a, a great question. Uh, so uh, the theory of quantum gravity that we don't have yet um, would be necessary to understand the universe in its very beginning, um, simply because, you know, if you follow the evolution of the universe sort of back to its infancy, it all started out in what we call the Big Bang when everything was basically squashed together in like a, a very, very small um, region of space-time. And in, in that regime, quantum gravity would be important. But since we don't have that theory yet, we can't explain uh, or we can't describe the, the sort of the birth of the universe. There is different ideas for what could have happened. So you, you just said everything was, was concentrated in a, in a so everything that we see in the universe today was concentrated in, yes. in this very, very small yes. thing. Uh, something that, uh, on, on quantum scales? Yes. So, so everything so, in the universe so was... So on extremely tiny scales. Was, was yeah. extremely tiny, yeah. yeah. So, so then you would think gravity exists in the, in the world today. Gravity must have been there just that yeah. split second mm -hmm. after the Big Bang. Yes, and, and somehow, I mean, everything came from this, like, very, very tiny space-time region where, where you sort of um, would have seen the fundamental fabric of space and time itself directly. So if we were able to sort of, you know, go back and observe that, that initial beginning, we would directly see quantum gravity at work. I've, I've got a little bit of a mind thing going on here you, you were talking about fractals earlier on you know so mm -hmm. so if we take this whole universe and we zoom it down mm -hmm. we're going into that quantum world and then we keep going and then you're you're stuck in that world of of fractals you know you're maybe stuck in this kind of uh, am, mm -hmm. am, am i on something psychedelic right now or or, or, or am i am i am i stuck in some kind of 
Yeah, I think, I think you're basically asking the, the question, you know, where this, where did this Big Bang come from? Yes. Like, you know, once we, we sort of, you know, we follow the evolution of the universe backwards to its very infancy, at some point, we get to this point where quantum gravity would have kicked in. Um, and, and then, you know, the question is, what was what was there before? What was the universe like before in this quantum world? Um, did it actually exist for a very long time, just in a sort of crazy quantum gravity form of way um, or did it really start at this very beginning or was there like a big universe before that collapsed uh, and then went through a quantum gravitational phase and then mm -hmm. produced the big bang uh, we just don't know that um, so there's different theories um, around that um, but we don't have an answer yet i i watched a youtube thing <laughs> but there, it was narrated by by some physicists uh, Brian Cox being one and it was about the, the future of the of the universe and it went trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of years into the future uh, eventually black holes are going to consume everything and then the black holes are going to consume each other and then there's just going to be one big black hole with everything kind of concentrated in it and then it was, it did, they didn't quite say but they kind of suggested to the viewer that once the last black hole consumes everything and everything's in there and it's so compressed in little tiny tiny space mm -hmm. like a quantum thing mm -hmm. boom the universe comes the big bang comes again so it's, it kind of didn't say but it suggested that that the universe lasts trillions and trillions and trillions of years and then it, it consumes itself and then, and then it explodes again so we don't actually know whether that could happen or not because we don't understand the the center of black holes yet um, so um, in, in the, the very, very center of, of black holes, um, effects of quantum gravity would become so large that definitely the description of, of classical general relativity breaks down. And so this means that, you know, these, these objects that we observe where, you know, last year the Event Horizon Telescope recorded this very first image. We can, you know, we, we can now see the shadows of black holes, but we don't understand these objects sort of fundamentally. We don't really know what their center looks like. And so therefore we don't really know what ultimately happens to things that fall in there. And also this means we don't understand the end of, a, of, a, of, the, of the lives of black holes. So black holes, um, they emit what is known as Hawking radiation, which means that they very, very, very slowly evaporate. Um, and at some point they become small enough so that this quantum gravity effect in its center really dominates what the whole black hole does. And at that point we just don't know um, what, what the sort of what the end of the life history of a black hole is. Mm -hmm. Does it exist in some form of quantum gravity state forever? Does it just evaporate completely? Mm -hmm. We don't know yet. And, and so I would say that this, this idea that, you know, the whole universe, um, you know, is eaten up by black holes and then something happens once there is just one of them left. Uh -huh. um, that is definitely a, a fascinating speculation. Um, but in order to be able to say something more definite about it, again, we would actually need to understand space time at, at its microscopic level at the at this at the smallest possible scales, but not just the space time, but in the center of a, of yeah, a black exactly. hole. Uh, just 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 to confirm that uh, what a black hole is, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a supermassive black star that that collapsed in on itself. Um, yeah, that, that's one way to make black holes. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, what a, what a black hole is characterized by is really that it's sort of um, a, a wall to information in the sense that stuff can, I mean, it's a wall that is one-sided. So stuff can fall in, but nothing can go out of a black hole. So a black hole is the ultimate gravity yes. <laughs> heavyweight. Yeah. It's, it's, so, it's so dense. Or there's so much gravity going on that, that not, yeah. nothing can escape. Yes. Yeah. So, so the the space time of curvature, uh, sorry, the curvature of space time becomes so extreme that it that it pulls light, so that light, so even light can't ex escape, and and anything other than I mean nothing can go faster than light, so anything other can also not escape. So you know you can build the most powerful rocket, um, you will not be able to escape from a black hole. So it, it's really a region where where gravity becomes much stronger. Than, than the gravity that we know on, on the surface of the Earth, you know, where you know, we can have apples fall and so on. And it, it bends space-time that much because of the high concentration of quantum particles that give gravity? Um, it doesn't have to be quantum particles. but So, so yeah, any form of, of energy and matter, if you compress it enough, 
it will make space-time curvature larger and larger. So for instance, just as a thought experiment, if you take Earth and you could compress all of Earth's mass into a marble of one centimeter, that this is where Earth would then turn into a black hole. So this gives you maybe an mm. idea of like how extreme these objects are. Um, the, the sort of the, the extremes of density that you would have to reach and, and because of the because of the difference in the the, the gravity which would be the, the bending of space and time if we go close to something of very concentrated gravity or, mm -hmm. or high gravity our own time slows down is that right yes according to the movie interstellar yeah so so that's actually an effect that that already kicks in um on earth so whenever you have a anything that that exerts gravitational force um so in, on the surface of the earth time goes a little slower than than it goes if you're for instance if you're a satellite um and so the the gps satellites they actually have to take this into account so this is a, a very subtle effect actually from general relativity um, if you neglect it, then then the GPS satellites will be off after a while. Um, so this fact that Earth that that on the surface of the Earth time goes a little slower due to this mm -hmm. curvature of space-time effect, that is something that that you know really affects everyday technology. Okay. Well, that that's an application there of of quantum quantum physics. Um, it's it's not of of quantum physics though. It's it's just of general relativity. Einstein's equations yeah. from a hundred years ago. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Without him, we wouldn't be able to use our Google Maps or... Yeah, I think without him, we would have, you know, assuming we wouldn't have known about general relativity, we would have then realized that something is off as we had sent up the, the GPS satellites. After a few days, they would just, you know, provide us with wrong positions. And then we would have realized, okay, there is something more going on. So there's maybe this alternative history yeah. of physics where, you know, GR gets discovered by sending up the GPS satellites and then realizing... There is some aspect that we are missing. But but he managed to do it just by thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that that is impressive. Yeah. Are are you aware of any other applications of uh, say? Well, no, sorry, that was general re relativity. Mm -hmm. But applications of of quantum theory in everyday. Oh, life. there there's lots. I mean, so so the whole understanding of modern electronics that we have of semiconductors. Um, that is all based on, on quantum physics. Um, so so um, basically, whenever you use a, a, anything that has a processor in it, my um, phone, yeah, your phone, um, all of that, you know, all of that modern electronics is based on on quantum physics. Um, another great example is, is solar cells. Um, that, that that's an effect um, from quantum physics that it uses. Um, and so maybe the one of the things to emphasize um, in, in that context. Since you know we are facing all of these you know grand challenges um, to solve you know climate change, um, hunger, health problems, and so on, um, there is always this reflex to focus more on on applied research where you can see that you know somebody is working directly on solving one of these grand challenges. Um, but these examples from quantum physics or also the example from general relativity shows you that very often some very basic and foundational research. Um, where the researchers were definitely not thinking about any of these applications, um, th then turns out to really be a driver of, of technology and of solutions uh, tomorrow. So I think this is an important historical lesson to keep in mind um, nowadays when there are you know, political discussions as to you know, what type of research should one be funding um, and what shouldn't one be funding. Well, I, I think it's, it, it's incredibly important to find out uh, what is the universe? <laughs> what is this thing that we're experiencing? Yeah. So, so like the, the the fact that you're you're looking into, you know, the the nature of, of quantum gravity. That's a, that's that's a fantastic thing. So. Yeah, well, I think it's something that maybe you know defines us as humans that we've always wanted to understand our world, right? And and I mean, obviously, you know, our possibilities, our our technological opportunities have advanced, and we can now ask these questions maybe in a more elaborate way. Then we were able to ask them 10,000 years ago when we were, you know, sitting in front of caves and, st and staring up at the night sky. But like fundamentally, I think we are always still asking the same questions, just sort of, you know, what is this universe around us like? What is it made of? Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, I think, uh, you know, the questions that really sort of define us as humans in some way. How did you get into this, Astrid? How did you get inspired to, to pursue a career in physics? 
Um, well, basically, by this ability to just ask really fundamental questions and to really understand something, you know, as fundamentally and as, as deeply as possible. And I have to say, I, I had a, had a great uh, physics teacher in grades um, 12 and 13. Um, so before that, I, I actually wasn't that much into physics. Um, before that, physics at school was um, basically a lot of electronics that I was not fascinated by. Um, and then I just had a great physics teacher who showed me that physics actually is about asking all of these fundamental questions. Um, and then in a very short time, I, des I decided that that's uh, what I actually want to do. And, and was it, was it uh, always focused in the quantum world? Um, yeah, it was always um, focused um, very much on, on questions of either very big or very small. Mm -hmm. um, so, so questions like from, from astronomy, from astrophysics, um, so the, you know, the universe as a whole. Uh, and on the other hand, questions in elementary particle physics, uh, sort of of the very small, so like the, you know, the universe as a whole and its fundamental building blocks. So both of these areas mm -hmm. um, are what always fascinated me most. So whenever I was studying physics, I was also perplexed at, at some of the things we were learning in uh, in class. So there's there's this uh, thing that a lot of physics students would have done, the double slit experiment. Mm -hmm. Maybe you want to explain it, actually. Sure. <laughs> um, well, so, so the, the double slit experiment is something um, that y you can easily think about with waves. Um, you can even think about ocean waves. I imagine you put... Um, a wall into the ocean um, and then waves crash into it and then you put two openings um, into it and then the waves can pass through and then you will see that behind the wave behind the wall when the waves meet again they will form a sort of non-trivial pattern um, and, and that's what it's then called an interference pattern so the two waves coming from these two openings they interfere with each mm -hmm. other and then you can do the same thing with light because there's also a wave um, and one of the really surprising things about quantum mechanics is that you can then do the same thing um, with objects that we think of as particles. For instance, you can do the, this experiment with electrons. You, you fire an electron at, 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 at one slit and it goes through that slit and out the other side. Yes. And if you fire it at two slits, it, it goes through both slits. Yeah, so, so, it's, <laughs> so it behaves as if it was a wave that passes through both, both slits at the same time. Um, and then interferes with itself. And, and so the position that it then ends up behind the wall is not the position that you would get if it would just sort of straightforwardly go through any one of the two mm -hmm. slits, just like, you know, like a classical football would do. Um, instead, it ends up somewhere where you can only describe how it ended up there because it behaved like a wave while it was passing through the two slits. So it, it collapses from a particle to a wave when, when presented with uh, uh, an option? Yeah, it sort of it it um, moves as if it was a wave, um, and whenever it interacts with something, it it goes back to its particle nature. So mm -hmm. when it hits the a wall in the back or a detector, it yeah. it behaves like a particle. So you see it as a point on a screen, but when it when it moves, when it propagates, then it behaves like a wave. So there there was something about if you have say an electron, then you have those two slits. But if you have a detector behind just one of the slits, mm -hmm. it will always go through just one slit. If you take the detector away, it will collapse into a wave until it hits the detector further back. Mm -hmm. It almost as if the subatomic particle knows that it's going to be observed at the other side of the two slits. Yeah, it's, it's because the, the observation process is an interaction. So whenever you observe something, you interact with it in some way. So in the classical world, we, we don't think about that so much. But I mean, whenever we observe something that typically involves light, right? So, so that involves actually light bouncing off an object and then making it into our screen, you know, our uh, screen that we have or making it into our eyes. So it's an interaction that is taking place. Um, and the, the thing with the quantum world is that these interactions then have a big impact on the, um, on the objects that we are observing. And that's what one sees with the with this double slit experiment. When one puts a detector behind one of the slits, that interacts with the particle. And whenever there is an interaction, that that has a big impact on the particle. So it completely changes the setup for the particle. I've got a big problem with that. I don't I don't I don't I don't understand that. I don't see how how the how this interaction can change the properties because 
you know, the electrons approaching the two slits and it shouldn't matter what's going to happen in the future, what it does currently. Mm-hmm. But what, hap- what will happen in the future does change what it does currently and that's the choice to go through either slit. Uh, so it's not something that that sort of that necessarily needs you to sort of have the future impact the past. Um, it's at the moment when the electron arrives at the slits and interacts mm-hmm. with the detector. At that moment, things change, and then the particle collapses back to its particle nature. It, it, so the particle doesn't need to know that there will yeah. be a detector. So up to the point where it reaches the the double the the two slits, it behaves in the same way for both setups. Mm-hmm. But then the measurement process, when that happens, that that changes the setup. How does that how does that interaction change the change the outcome? Um, so so any any interaction um, or most interactions actually lead to the the you know the wave that describes the particle collapsing back to just one particular location. Mm-hmm. And so when there is this detector between one of the slits that changes the the wave nature back to the particle nature. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't still don't get that. But but where it was going with it anyway was 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 uh, it, it the way I read it was that conscious observation can change the properties of yeah, I don't. I don't think consciousness uh, is is involved in that because the same thing happens if you just you know if you put a detector um, and you don't have an experimentalist sitting there and observing it, you just have let's say a, a laptop recording the results. Mm-hmm. Um, so so it's it's not that the conscious observation mm-hmm. um, is what changes this. It's really just the interaction mm-hmm. of the particle with the detector. There's another example that I'll give you. I believe it's called the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Mm-hmm. There's electrons spinning around an atom, or, 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 or a nucleus, mm-hmm. and you can see its momentum or its speed, but you can't see its position, or you can see its position, but you won't be able to see its 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 speed. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, we're unable to we're unable to just observe. Uh, subatomic particles in in a in a way that that's rational to me. <laughs> well, well, yeah. Why why can we measure one thing and not the other at the same time? Um, it has to do with the fact that that fundamentally the particle isn't really a particle like a sort of tiny version of a of a football or something like that, but it has this dual nature of like being a particle but also a wave. And so a wave had, has this property that is, for instance, spread out in space. So when the, the you know the wave might be going in a particular direction, but you can't really say the wave is exactly here. It's sort of mm-hmm. a thing that is spread out. Um, and because of this wave-like nature that particles also have, one of the consequences of that is the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. And and yeah, I agree. It's it's always completely unintuitive, and and um, it's I think it takes everybody. Um, uh, you know, a, a while to sort of get used to those properties. I don't think physicists necessarily really understand what goes on in quantum physics. We just get used to the fact that that's the way it is. Um, and it's just because it's so different from our sort of everyday experience that we are finding that very unintuitive. Is it because our, our, our brains were evolved to survive the savannah? Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> maybe. I mean, you know, in the savannah, you don't need to sort of understand, you know, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. It's irrevelant. Uh, you need a brain that is, you know, uh, qu- quick to to react to, you know, things as they are in in sort of in in the world at at the sort of you know human scale. Um, and and so we just have our intuition sort of honed on on that that scale, and it doesn't work so well when we go to much much bigger scales like the whole, you know, the universe as a whole. Or much much smaller scales. Mm-hmm. Um, I would imagine if we were sort of you know quantum beings and and live our everyday life in like a quantum world, then we would find that completely intuitive, and we would be very puzzled by like a classical world where somebody says like, oh, you know, you can measure the position and the velocity of the football at the same time. I think we would find <laughs> that very puzzling. <laughs> but it, it's still quite extraordinary that that a mind was you know essentially evolved to evade a saber toothed tiger. It was able is able to to contemplate. The entirety of the universe. Yeah, that, um, that's true. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So certainly, I mean, the brain is certainly a, a totally amazing thing. And you're using it. Cheers yeah. to that. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Okay.
I don't know. You, you seem very, very sure of these things. <laughs> well, I mean, for, for a lot of these things, we are pretty sure because we have, uh, you know, a, a mathematical framework that allows us to understand these things very precisely, right? I mean, so math is like a much more precise version of language. Is, is, that, what, is that the tool that you're using to, to address your, your questions about quantum gravity? Yes. Pure mathematics. Yes. It's, I mean, mm. any physical theory is, is mathematics mm. um, with an interpretation, obviously. Um, and then, of course, I mean, with, with all of these quantum properties of elementary particles, they have been very, very well tested in like many, many, many experiments. Um, and so this is why we are pretty sure, you know, how, how these things work. Mm. We are not so sure then if we go into the quantum gravity regime because there we can formulate mathematical theories but we don't have experiments to decide which of these alternative mathematical you know which of these alternative theories all of which are sort of mathematically viable which of those is sort of the one that nature chose to realize mm -hmm. and and that's different if we're talking about quantum properties of elementary particles we have a mathematical theory for that but also most importantly we have experiment and they go hand in hand and you know confirm each other and so we have we then have a a good understanding of what happens in these systems and even how wild the theory might sound mm -hmm. it's first proposed mathematically and then it is it is realized experimentally and some of the quantum experiments are more, the more the most precise experiments that we we have it doesn't make any sense but but it works and the theory's all true <laughs> yeah that, that that's uh, i guess kind of uh, how it works right i mean so so the question whether or not something conform, conforms, conforms to human intuition is, is not um, a way to decide whether it's a, a correct description of nature, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so nature doesn't need to behave in a way that makes sense for us. So as, as long as we have um, a mathematical understanding that, that is mathematically correct, and then we can make predictions based on that, that come out right, then that is a viable model of nature. I just I, I can't let you go without without touching on, on some uh, controversial theories if if you sure. don't mind. Uh, so there's a couple of theories that are gaining weight, I think, and one of them is called panpsychism, and the other is called biocentrism. So panpsychism is a theory that consciousness is something that everything has. You know, this uh, this glass holding my beer. Uh, and there's just varying degrees of it, and and so it described consciousness as a, a, a force of nature mm -hmm. of the, that connects everything. Mm -hmm. Before you, you talk about that, I'm going to say about biocentrism, which was invented by a, a biologist, <laughs> Robert Robert Lanza, that puts biology at the forefront of physics mm -hmm. uh, and talks about uh, consciousness is is like. A necessity for understanding the universe or as Carl Sagan says we are the way for the cosmos to know itself um, they kind of lead to the, the suggestion that the, our very conscious observation of the universe is is a necessity in the universe I think those are all um, great questions and they really sort of show how little we understand about the world that we live in right so we really just sort of scratched um the surface of, of our of understanding um the universe um so i think you know understanding consciousness is obviously you know big um big and and as yet um unreached goal of of you know neuroscience um and um i think there's definitely exciting things to understand there um i'm not sure whether it will be a another force of nature um <laughs> sudden i mean at the moment there's certainly nothing in physical theories that would you know suggest that we would need to include a force like that but obviously we don't understand consciousness yet mm -hmm. um so so we can't really say well i, I um, wanted to bring that up with with a, an actual quantum physicist here um but but yeah so so it, it's not part of your your list of uh, fundamental universal forces no it's not <laughs> But I, I can't exclude for sure that it, you know, that in the future it might not become. I, I mean, I personally would be skeptical about that simply because I don't see any indications um, that that would be a necessity. But obviously, you know, I can't can't exclude it um, for sure. Um, well, the, the, in their arguments, they were using some of the things we talked about earlier on, which, uh, you know, the observation changes the 
yeah. properties of subatomic particles. But as I said, it doesn't have to be an observation that in includes consciousness. So mm. it can just be an observation that is really just, you know, the interaction of different physical objects with each other. Um, and so therefore, you know, I think, uh, you know, there there's no necessity to include consciousness in order to understand the fundamental physical world. Well, that was some pretty tough topics there. And, and uh, it, it, yeah, I, 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 I still don't, still don't feel that, that I'm, I, I have, well, well, there is no answer to quantum gravity, so I shouldn't feel bad that I don't understand. Exactly, yeah. So, so, so that's um, basically what, you know, to varying degrees, everybody in the quantum gravity community feels. Yes. Uh, you know, maybe part of the community feels they are closer to an answer than other parts, but none of us knows or feels that they know what quantum gravity is. Mm -hmm. can, can, can you describe how... Is, do you collaborate with with other people? Do you, do you bounce ideas off each other? How, how, how do you uh, how do you negotiate all these different theories of quantum gravity? In quantum gravity, because we don't really have experiments that help us, there's you know various camps that develop different theories, um, and to some extent, those camps then have come have become a little entrenched, um, and you know little sort of local disputes or I wouldn't call them wars but sort of you know conflicts um, broke out um, and one of the things that maybe a sort of a newer generation of researchers is currently trying to establish in, in the quantum gravity community is this idea that we really need diversity of ideas and viewpoints in order to make progress on these tough questions um, so theories like for instance loop quantum gravity or string theory have been developed for 30-40 years and none of them has yet reached a point where we say, oh, it's actually a satisfactory theory and it really makes full sense and so on. Um, and so maybe we have reached a point where we need, need to go you know, beyond these entrenched camps and, and um, have the realization that um, by bringing various viewpoints together, this is how we can really make progress. Um, and I think this is maybe something that is, that is important for science as a whole, um, that, you know, that diversity of ideas is really something that, that we need. Um, in contrast to just you know following the same type of ideas with the same type of people, I don't think this this is the type of thinking that will solve any of the big problems, be that quantum gravity or any of the more applied problems. So it, it's collaboration, international collaboration, and uh, work, yes. working together. To yeah, try but to also appreciating you know people coming with out of the box ideas and really coming from a completely different perspective that very much challenges um, what one is used to thinking. Um, that, that, that's think, important, even though that's sort of an unpleasant process to go through when somebody shows up and, you know, challenges all your ideas and questions everything. Um, th that's really a necessity to make progress. So so what's what's next, Astrid? You, you got this uh, grant from the, the, the Willem, Willem Fund. Uh, you're, you're making a team mm -hmm. to, to figure out the nature of quantum gravity. Can, can you tell me what, what, what's, what does the future hold for you? Yeah, so, so the future um, holds a, a bunch of... Uh, to me, very exciting questions. Um, I don't think we will figure out the nature of quantum gravity, but hopefully we'll make like a few you know, steps in that direction. Um, well, one of those steps is maybe more abstract. It has to do with the fact that we want to understand the microscopic structure of space and time, whereas until now we have focused more on just understanding the fundamental nature of space and like, you know, the presence of time really focuses a big, it constitutes a big riddle that we are trying mm -hmm. um, to tackle next. Um, the, the other um, sort of big exciting question is to understand how dark matter fits into this whole picture. Um, so I've, I've said before that, you know, we focus on like the interplay of space time and of matter. Um, and obviously dark matter is this big, um, not understood component of the universe, some form of matter that we don't understand yet. Um, and we want to understand whether by putting it into this common picture with space time and matter, whether this allows us to understand a little bit more what dark matter could be. Um, and in order to tackle these questions, um, I'm, I'm bringing in new team members, um, international um, team members. So all of this is a very international effort. Um, and we'll have a, a student and a, um, a PhD student and, and a postdoc um, joining us from Brazil, hopefully soon. Okay. Can, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about dark matter? Just, just, uh, just to give us yeah, an idea. Sure. Um, so so um, the, the fact that there is dark matter is something that was first observed um, by Vera Rubin. 
Uh, she was looking at how galaxies rotate around um, their centers. Mm. Um, and she discovered that they were actually going way too fast. Um, so um, f from what you see, a galaxy should just instantly fly apart because the outer parts just rotate way too quickly. Um, and so from that one infers that there has to be way more matter than what we see in the stars that holds the galaxy together. Um, and we don't really understand at all what it is. Uh, and so that's why it's called dark matter. Um, and um, what, what we are trying to do um, in my team is to take a sort of really fundamental perspective on that and try to understand, well, at the, at the most fundamental level, if we try to put this into a common framework with the microstructure um, of, of space-time, does this somehow restrict what the properties of dark matter uh, could be? Does this somehow allow us um, to narrow down the like possible choices of what type of particle dark matter could be? Okay, we don't know what it is, but it, it, it sure has some gravity. It definitely has some gravity. <laughs> that, that's one thing that we know for sure. And it doesn't, doesn't emit any light. That, that are the two things that we know. Nice, nice. Well, good luck, Thank Astrid, you. for for you and your team. Thanks. And uh, yeah, whenever uh, maybe maybe we can check in again. Yeah. <laughs> and see see how how close we are to understanding the quantum nature of gravity. Astrid Icon, thank you very much for joining me on the Science of Beers podcast. Thanks for having me. Cheers to science. <laughs> Cheers to science. <laughs> I hope your brain didn't hurt as much as mine whilst thinking about what is in the space between electrons but it was fun to imagine anyway so uh, we'll be keeping an eye on on Astrid's work to see if we're getting any closer to understanding the nature of quantum gravity please consider supporting this podcast you can do that at patreon.com forward slash science and beers thanks for listening <laughs>